when I was first out of college, I had been invited to go and spend a weekend at my recently married friend's place. And I had never spent that long with friends who were married. And let me tell you, that weekend felt like so long. They fought the entire time. And I actually said, if this is what it's like to be married, I'm going to stay single. Now, there are good examples of people who chose to remain single. Mother Teresa, the Apostle Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament. And he even wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 how it is good in general to be single. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, he never got married. You know, singleness is a gift, and it is to be honored. And too often in the church, we seem to elevate marriage over singleness, and we shouldn't. There are good reasons to be single, even if it is only for a season, like it was for me. But I do think there are many false assumptions that people are believing when they're choosing whether or not they should get married. And our hope is that during this particular series, whether you are single or you're married, you will learn and hear what marriage is actually meant to be. You know, it's recorded that marriage right now is at its lowest in 150 years in North America. People have actually told me that they're choosing not to marry because in their own painful experience, they see marriage as oppressive, as identity crushing. They assume most married people are not happy. And so they figure, well, why bother just getting a piece of paper? Living together, it feels like less of a commitment and it's becoming the preferred option. And some people, they don't marry because they are looking for a soulmate. I've actually heard comments like, I don't want someone to change me. I want someone to love me just the way I am. And what I hear them saying is, I'm looking for someone who's already well-adjusted, who's happy, who is not emotionally needy, who has very few character flaws. Okay, the problem is, there's almost no one like that out there to marry. I mean, look at the person beside you. People are strange. And, and what if you don't realize how strange they are until you're already married? <laughs> Sam Hamburg, he has a PhD, he's a marriage therapist, and he says the key to a happy marriage is picking the right person in the first place, someone with whom you are deeply compatible. Now, he also says happy marriages that start that way stay that way, but unhappy marriages are doomed. Do you agree with him? Is he missing something? Are unhappy marriages unfixable? And is the point of marriage our own happiness? What is the meaning to marriage? These are big questions. And this is our third week talking about marriage and why it matters to everyone in this community. And I have been so excited about this marriage sermon series because I believe it will impact our community and it will impact the vision that we have here at Sanctus Church. So Port Perry, Bowmanville, Pickering, all of you, I hope you have been listening in. Today we're going to dig a little deeper into what scripture has to say about the meaning of marriage. If you know the biblical meaning of marriage, it'll impact the way you live. It'll impact the way you treat singles. 
and how you treat those who are married. And I wish so much that I understood this about marriage back when just after college I visited my friends because I know I would have responded differently. Pastor Dave started off this series with a pretty untraditional passage from Hosea on marriage. And today we'll look at a passage that is listed when you Google search Bible verses on marriage. So turn or uh, navigate to Ephesians 5. This portion of scripture is written by the Apostle Paul in the first century, and it was written to an audience whose view primarily was that marriage was a social transaction. So a good marriage just linked your family to another good family. It was important that your name carried on, and so you needed to have children. But today, in this culture, that isn't the primary reason for marriage. Those who do decide to get married often get married out of a response to a romantic relationship, and they're looking for emotional happiness. But Paul, he writes this view of marriage that would have certainly astonished the original readers, and I think even more so us today. Now, the verse on marriage is actually at the end of the chapter, but to understand the context, let's look first at the very beginning. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Imitate, follow God's example as dearly loved children, and walk in a way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then following that verse, there's several verses that describe how Christ followers should live. And I urge you later today, take time to read through that. But after that long list, it's like Paul is acknowledging living a righteous life is impossible without God. So he declares in verse 18, be filled with his spirit. Now this isn't an optional thing for Christ followers. There's no technique to learn. There's no formula to recite. To be filled with the spirit simply happens the moment you believe and you surrender to him. His spirit then enters you. And what gets me excited is that you can be continually be filled with his spirit as you're open to him. So Ephesians 5:18, be filled with the spirit. Following that, it says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is what being filled with the Spirit looks like. Paul, the writer of Ephesians, he describes several marks of a person who is filled with the Spirit, including singing, and thanksgiving, but the final mark is in verse 21. It's this spirit-empowered submission. Now, so many of us cringe at the word submission. My friend Kathy, she used to think it was hilarious when she was driving us that she would stomp on the brakes and yell out, bow to me, and everyone was lunged forward. <laughs> you know, forceful submission, it hurts. But willing submission, that's what moves us from individualism to being able to live in community. Interestingly, the whole concept of submission is extremely important in the New Testament. Paul writes about it more than 20 times. And his main concern 
was that his readers would understand that the dangers of pride, of position, and an authoritarian spirit, that these things are destructive to community. So an openness to submission is relevant whether you are single or married. Submission to one another is an expression of the enthusiasm that the spirit inspires, and it's what brings us all together. Submission is evidence that one is filled with the Spirit of God. When we hear of spirit-filledness, many of us think about inner peace and power, and that is the result. Jesus also spoke of the Holy Spirit primarily as the Spirit of truth. Throughout the book of John, you'll actually see the Holy Spirit's ministry is to take the truths about Jesus, make them clear to our minds and real to our hearts. Now, since there's probably been controversy stirring up inside you ever since I mentioned the word submission, allow me for a moment just to ask God to do exactly that. So Lord God, Holy Spirit, we take the truths about Jesus, make them clear to our minds and real to our hearts now as we proceed throughout this passage. Amen. People who are led by the Spirit submit to one another, and in this day and age, we emphasize equality, and it seems to make the idea of mutual submission illogical. However, Christ-like love and an understanding of the gospel allows mutual submission to start to make sense. What the Apostle Paul has in mind is that Christians would actually reject self-centeredness and the then work towards the good of others. So that means we give up our rights and the desire to promote ourselves and our own interests. Think about this for a moment. If you felt completely supported and valued by those around you, wouldn't you find it easier to submit to them? The flow of this whole chapter is important. After the verses on a spirit-filled life, he writes examples of how believers should submit to one another. And he does start with the marriage relationship. So look now to verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. In isolation, this verse would have looked like it's all about control. But in the context of this chapter, it simply is an example of living a spirit-filled life. The text says, wives, submit. It does not say obey. Submit to the husband as the head. I grappled with, okay, what does the word head mean? And some commentaries that I looked at said that head means source, so meaning to come from. Well, when I think about how the Bible says the first woman was made from the first man, saying source as the definition of the word would be acceptable, but only if the text actually said man was the head of woman. But that isn't what it says. At no point is it saying women submit to men or that a married woman should submit to all men. It specifically says a wife should submit to her own husband. As the church submits to Christ because Christ is the head of the church, there is no doubt that Christ is the leader of the church. He protects and provides and is responsible for it. So head must also mean leader. 
Now, women who are married to men who have not surrendered their lives to God will find it incredibly difficult to submit to their husband's leadership. Submission to someone else's leadership has actually not always been very easy for me. Partly because of my personality, but also now in my position, I am a leader, and frankly, I enjoy being in control. So, if I am going to submit, I need to choose to submit. It's an action I take. It is not a passive response. It does not mean that there's agreement on everything. Submission is not a lack of control. I have learned to see it as a gift that I have the control to give. And my husband and I have worked out a rhythm that works well for us now, but when we first got married, he needed to learn how to initiate more. And I needed to learn how to trust him more. And we were able to learn these things only because we would create a safe environment to try them out. Now, many times we're actually pretty like-minded even when it comes to big decisions, but there have been times when we weren't. And I always share what I think. And I will influence his thinking. But since I believe he is following God's lead, I'm willing to follow my husband's lead. Now those times require a great deal of patience, but I will tell you this. I have always grown in my faith in a God who is at work for the good of those who love him. A wife submits to her husband's leadership for a few reasons. First, because it says to do it in scripture. Those who acknowledge scripture as a guiding authority need to do what it says. Second reason I found was in Titus 2. And that's a pretty popular chapter for women. Titus 2 verse 5, it says, Women are to be sensible, pure, makers of a home, so that means where God is honored, good-natured, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. According to that verse, a wife should submit to her husband because the world is watching your marriage. When I had the privilege to travel to Bangladesh and to go and meet Sanctus Church's global partners there, I was so impressed how our partners would train and equip couples, both men and women equally in everything that they needed to know so that they would then be commissioned out together to do ministry. In this country where less than 1% of the population is Christian, what they are doing that sets the Christians apart is actually providing a way for couples together to minister. Now, even at the time that this particular text was written, the way that a Christian wife relates to her husband, it can be a source of scandal for those who are looking on. So out of concern for the testimony that is seen by non-believers, a wife submits. Third reason, the living God has given the husband the role of headship And what good is a leader if there are no followers? Now, for everyone, think about who would you be willing to follow? You follow someone who understands their role and someone who's leading you in a direction towards a vision, a goal that you are unified in. Skip down for a moment just to verse 33 to see the closing instruction there. Wives are also to respect their husbands. Not everything a husband does is worth respecting. But if you haven't been respectful, I encourage you 
Start by trying to be considerate of his feelings. And I admit, it is easier to respect someone who is respectable because then you're drawn to their behavior, their character. My husband, who's also named Paul, he didn't write this stuff. But Paul and I have now been married 15 and a half years and we met in this church. Shortly after we, we met, we joined a connect group. And in a group, when you're living life together, you are able to get to know someone exceptionally well. Little groups plug from your groups, Pastor. So in our group together one time, we weren't dating at the time, but we were just playing games. There was this game called Cranium. We were on opposite teams, but we happened to be sitting side by side. And his team needed to guess the word that his teammate was acting out. And I happened to figure it out before them. And I leaned over to him and I said the word, kleptomaniac. <laughs> and he didn't shout it out. And I thought, oh, he didn't hear me. So I lean over a little bit closer and I said it again a little louder, kleptomaniac. And nothing. I was like, oh, I didn't know Paul was deaf in one ear. <laughs> and then the round ends because the time lapsed and he leans over and he's like, I heard you. I thought, oh, oh, wow. All of a sudden my insides started to flutter. I realized this guy's not a cheater. Oh, I'm so drawn to his character and to the integrity. Now don't think too hard about what this story says about me. Suffice it to say, I'm a sinner, and I have learned that following his lead has actually made me a better person. But you might be asking, well, how do I submit to someone if I see them as my equal? Husbands and wives, men and women have equal value, and the Bible is very clear. In the beginning, both genders were made in the image of God. They were endowed with different characteristics, yes, but both male and female, they express something different about God and the differences are complementary, never competitive. We can look to the Trinity of God to help us understand submission of equal persons. The oneness that is spoken about in Genesis when it talks about marriage is actually the same word that's used in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Together, unified, yet still distinct, Jesus is God and he submits to the Father when he says, not my will be done, but yours. Now I've been describing an ideal situation and the painful fact is that sin distorts submission. And these verses have been used like a club to keep women in a defeated role even inside the church. In 1998, there was this study about the abuse of women in Christian homes. Abuse of women and the term Christian homes, these should be mutually exclusive, but they're not. That study concluded one third of all wives are beaten during the course of their marriage. Christians, must take a more forceful stand against the wife abuse and against all denigration of women. And I believe that's exactly what the writer Paul was doing when he wrote this particular passage. 
As I said, his original readers would have been astonished at his words because those who were Jews, they had a very low view of women. And even the Greeks who were newly being introduced to the gospel, they also had a low view of women. Their philosopher Seneca is recorded as writing, women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. So the atmosphere was adulterous. This entire passage was challenging everyone's view Is it challenging you today? Hear this, women aren't being seen as inferior. They're being lifted up. Since wives are asked to submit, one might think, okay, the text would now ask husbands to rule, but it does not. Instead, husbands are instructed to love their wives, give themselves as Christ loved the church. Pope John II said that the opposite to love is not hate, The opposite to love is to use. True love makes a commitment. Husbands are to love their wives as they do their own bodies. So just like they would feed and care for it, they're instructed to nourish and cherish their wife. Gentlemen, if you are single or married, are you taking efforts to become healthier physically, emotionally, and spiritually? If not, it'll be harder for you to do this for another. But for your wife, you are to nourish and cherish. These are some helpful definitions. Nourish, give an abundance of what she needs to flourish. Cherish, tenderly care for, support, encourage, hold dear, show affection. In 1 Peter 3, these instructions are actually fairly similar given to husbands. But in verse 7, it gives a reason why husbands are actually supposed to live this way. Husbands are told to live with their wife in an understanding or considerate way and to honor their wife as a fellow heir of Christ's grace. So there it points to the equalness again. But it says a reason so that their prayers are not hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7, so that your prayers will not be hindered. It's so interesting to me that Peter makes this connection that the way a husband lives with his wife has an impact on the hearing or possibly the answering of his prayers. It might be helpful for you to think about it this way. If you are married to a Christian woman, she is the daughter of the Most High God. In the book Sacred Marriage, the author refers to God as a heavenly father-in-law. So can you picture this overprotective daddy who very much cares about how you treat his little girl is watching the way you cherish and nourish her. And if it is lacking, he's allowing it to cause a barrier for him to listen to your requests. So that's the what and the why, but look again at our text to find out what's the how that is asked of husbands. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives. Now the writer Paul could have used the Greek word eros, for love because eros refers to a sexual love and of course there is that in marriage but he isn't only referring to an eros type of love he he could have used the term phileo 
which phileo means companionship, the marriage relationship is definitely about having a lifelong friend. But again, he isn't talking only about friendship. He chooses to use the word agape, a Greek word that agape, love, it means being cared for other, caring for others because God first loved us. It's actually a response to the God who is love. It's the selfless kind of love that is evident only when we look at the gospel. And the good news is actually described in these verses. So the church, and more specifically, people, we are defiant. And sin has separated us from the one who created us. But because of his love, God sent his son who submitted to him. And with his death on the cross, he rescued us and cleansed us. And then he presents us back, reconciling mankind's broken relationship with God. And married couples get to model how Christ sees his relationship with the church. It's an earthly analogy of spiritual truth. Israel was viewed as God's marriage partner. The Israelites were set apart for God. Set apart means sanctified, cleansed, all for the purpose of then being presented back to God. The prophet Isaiah describes it like this in Isaiah 6:10. He has covered me with clothes of salvation and wrapped me with a coat of goodness. Like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding, like a bride dressed in jewels. Submission to the one who is leading you to be presented to God is worth following. And Jesus is our model. Jesus models servant leadership in John 13. Jesus, on the night before his death, he famously washes his disciples' feet, both showing and then teaching them how he was redefining authority and headship. John 13, verses 12 to 16, he says to them, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash each other's feet I've given you an example to follow, so do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, servants are not greater than their master. Jesus is a model for husbands and how he relates to the church. He puts her needs above his own. Jesus is a model for wives in how he relates to the father in submission. Philippians 2, 5 to 11 says that Jesus is equal with God, and yet he sacrificed his glory He took the role of servant. Jesus took on the most submissive role, that of a servant who dies in his master's service. Jesus willingly accepted the role he was given. Do you willingly accept the role that you've been given? The roles that I've mentioned are gender specific and you might be wondering, well, what does that look like in the day to day? The specific directions of how this plays out isn't listed in the Bible. The Bible gives freedom on the details. You won't find a list of household chores that says specifically what men are to do and what women are to do. Who cleans the house and who looks after the finances? That shouldn't be decided based on gender. Good leadership is being able to see the giftings and the competencies in your spouse and then enabling them to develop them and to use them. And in this church, we talk a lot about gift-based ministry. So if it is your gifting, do it because it becomes natural for you. If it isn't your gift, 
practice discipline and learn how to do the task that needs to be done. But what you decide, decide together. Ephesians 5, 32, the two will become one flesh, a united front, one physically, emotionally, spiritually. And the secret to all of this is actually revealed in the very next verse. Paul uses the word mystery, which in the New Testament, it it doesn't mean something that's too complex or too deep, too obscure, something that's just too distant for humans to understand. No, the Greek word that Paul uses for mystery is the idea of a secret. It refers to the fact that there's a hidden purpose of God, but it's now revealed for our understanding, for our enjoyment. The marriage union is a mystery, he says, because its deepest meaning was concealed by God during the Old Testament history, but it's now openly revealed by the apostle, namely that marriage is an image of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, 32, he says, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage is like a metaphor, an image, a picture, a model, it's a sign. And it stands for something so much more than a man and a woman becoming flesh. It stands for the relationship between Christ and the church. That's the deepest meaning of marriage. It's meant to be this living drama of how Christ and the church relate to one another. Jeffrey Bromley says, as God made man in his own image, so he made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. That's the secret. That's the gospel of Jesus and marriage actually explain one another. When God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. Is your marriage in crisis? Well, the people of earth certainly were in crisis. And so just like there's hope for all of mankind, there is hope for your marriage. As Tim Keller wrote, So what do you need to make a marriage work? You need to know the secret, the gospel, and how it gives you both the power and the pattern for your marriage. On the one hand, the experience of marriage will unveil the beauty and depths of the gospel to you. It will drive you further into reliance on it. And on the other hand, a greater understanding of the gospel will help you experience a deeper and deeper union with each other as the years go on the best thing that you can do for your partner is to love Jesus more. If you love Jesus more than you love your spouse, you will actually love your spouse more than if you had loved your spouse without loving Jesus. God looks at you and he has a view of you that is actually based on a knowledge of the future. He sees you as this glory-filled person that you will be one day when he makes you perfectly whole. And when your spouse is spirit-filled and is given a glimpse of that glory-filled you, your spouse can actually help you live more like it in the here and now. Now, you may look at your spouse and think, I don't see that glory-filled person. And if that's a challenge to you, even if you don't feel like doing this, I encourage you, pray and ask God, would you help me to see them how you see them? Because sometimes when you see the potential, it'll actually prompt you and give you a desire to want to help them be better. Marriage is the primary relationship for discipleship. Studies show that spouses hold one another 
to greater levels of personal responsibility and self-discipline, much more than friends or any other family member could. In an intimate marriage, you can't hide yourself, especially in those sleep-deprived moments. After my second child was born, it was like my kids decided to sleep on rotation and I slept not at all. And it was in that season of our marriage that my husband and I would lash out at each other simply because we were too tired to think about our body language or what it meant to be kind. And often we had to say the words, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean that. If you're in a season like that, are you apologizing often? And are you forgiving even more often? Well, I've definitely changed since I first got married. And with each added responsibility and with each ache and with each pain, I have adjusted. But I am so thankful to have a companion who's willing to listen to me, willing to correct me, and willing to walk this life with me forever. Marriage is about helping each other grow out of your sins and flaws and into the new self that God is creating. Now, all marriages would benefit if only you would give attention to them. And if you want your marriage to get stronger, you need to invest in it. Doing something like the marriage course will incredibly impact your marriage. Now, I know there are some marriages that are desperately struggling. And if you are, get help. Come for prayer, cry out to God because he is listening and nothing is impossible for him. And struggling marriages may also need clinical counseling because an outside trained person can help you to see that you need to take personal responsibility for your own contributions to the breakdown. Are you often pointing the finger? Well, stop focusing on what they are doing or what they're not doing and instead ask yourself, ask God, ask a counselor, ask to be shown how you are actually part of the problem too. Because it's time for us to take responsibility for our actions, our words and our attitudes because your marriages matter. If you have kids, your marriages matter to your kids. And your marriages matter to your friends, to your family, to your connect group. They matter to this community and they matter to the world that's watching. If your marriage is on the brink of divorce, you may need something more intensive. There are marriage intensives. That's a multiple day restorative retreat like the ones that are hosted by Focus on the Family. You know, happiness in life is often a ripple effect to what we believe. And I read a report, a sociologist wrote, actually, most people are happy in their marriages. And most of those who are not, but don't get divorced, they eventually become happy. I'd like to think that that's because they have hope. Hope that fear and anger will end. Hope that healing 
and restoration will come. Hope that once what was can be redeemed. Hope that change is possible. And the true God that you find in this book is the one where that hope can be found. And it starts first with believing and then just opening yourself up to him, inviting him in because he will do a work in you and fill you with his spirit. And he says he is faithful to what he has begun. Now, for many couples, their united front, their oneness, it gets tested every single time we face the tough things that life throws at us. In 2016, my husband was going through treatment for stage four lymphoma. After every chemotherapy treatment, he needed a needle and he needed one for seven days and then we had a small break till his next treatment and had to go again. And I am no nurse. I am intentionally in a profession where I get paid to talk and to listen, but not to touch. But there we were. I learned how to correctly give him his needles. I had to calmly and carefully try and find a fleshy part of his side or his arm or his leg. And believe me, he's a thin guy now, but he was like 40 pounds thinner then, and that wasn't easy. But what was even more so difficult was just knowing I was inflicting pain and it had to be done because the medicine was part of how God was healing him. And we were in this together as one flesh, physically, emotionally, and spiritually united. Now there may be truths that you have been avoiding saying because you foresee the pain is actually too great. But if you would learn how to calmly and carefully find the right way to say what needs to be said so that it's actually heard and received, you can then work towards becoming one together. So take a moment, bow your heads, pray, listen, commit to whatever next steps God has been prompting you to take so that you will help your marriage or other marriages in this community to reflect what they're truly meant to be. Are you willing to fulfill your role in the greater picture that is intended by marriages? Heavenly Father, speak to us. Help us to know what is the next step you are calling of us. Lord, forgive us when we haven't wanted to submit to the role you have given us. Fill us with your spirit. Would you make us a community that is evident of submission? May our community be full of healthy marriages so that those around us would see and accept the gospel and that your name would be lifted high and glory would be brought to you. Come, Holy Spirit, begin a work in us today. In your name we pray, amen. <laughs>